and welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Rachel Onstad, and we'll be getting to the interview with Anlor Davin in just a minute. I've been adding these little prologues to the podcasts because as I'm going along making the podcast, I'm learning how to make it better and realizing that there's some things that I should put at the start of every show to make life easier for everyone. And so until I get caught up with going through these old interviews where I didn't say this stuff at the top of the show, I'll be adding this little prologue. First of all, I'd like to say that the music for this show comes from the Open Goldberg Variations by Kamiko Ishizaka. It's public domain, and you can learn all about it at opengoldbergvariations.org. But if you want the recordings themselves, I recommend that you do a little searching on the internet. For some reason, they make it hard to find there. You go onto that website and they're encouraging you to buy it, which, you know, if you have the money and can support them, that's fantastic. But if you're hurting for funds, it is in the public domain. It was funded to be in the public domain and you should just go ahead and use it for projects because it's absolutely gorgeous or just listen to it around your house. I also want to mention that the easiest way for me to let people know that this podcast exists is to go around to various Facebook groups and post it. And I do that. Uh, I make sure, of course, that that Facebook group doesn't mind me posting the links there. What that leads to, for better or worse, is a lot of people listening to the podcast on Facebook, which gets to be kind of a problem in part because Sometimes Facebook will put me into Facebook jail if I go around posting these links on a, a bunch of different groups at once. And I realize that, you know, if I post five and then wait five minutes, I can post five more and so on. And I, if I'm lucky, I won't get put in Facebook jail. But uh, it's kind of a big risk for me to even do that. So I'm trying to look for ways to get around that. And so there's a few things that you can do to help me shift the audience from Facebook onto the RSS feed where it originates from. So you can do a few things. You can go to the Actually Autistic podcast inside your favorite podcasting app, whatever that is, whether it's iTunes or uh, Spotify or, you know, whatever it is, you should be able to find it there. And you can subscribe from there. And that's the absolute best. Uh, another thing that you can do if you don't like using a podcast app is that you can go to the Actually Autistic page on wishka.com where the podcast lives. And there's a button there that you can click to say subscribe to podcast. And then you can do that and it will just show up in your email. That website is https colon backslash backslash player p l a y e r dot wushka w h o o s h k a a dot com. That's w h o o s h k a a dot com backslash Actually, A-C-T-U-A-L-L-Y hyphen autistic, A-U-T-I-S-T-I-C. So you can go there to 
https player.wishka.com backslash actually uh, hyphen autistic. And you can subscribe to the podcast there. You can also go there to listen to the podcast. That's totally fine too, what, whatever you want to do. But this way, the RSS feed shows up. You're automatically notified when there's another episode. You can also go to the RSS feed itself. For those of you that just want to know what the RSS feed, simple enough, https colon backslash backslash rss.wushka, W-H-O-O-S-H-K-A-A dot com backslash rss backslash podcast backslash ID backslash 6576. That's HTTPS colon backslash backslash RSS dot Wushka dot com backslash RSS backslash podcast backslash ID backslash 6576. <laughs> now, I also have a website, a WordPress website, and you can get there too by going to www.actuallyautistic, all one word, A-C-T-U-A. A L L Y A U T S. Oh, brother. A C T U A L L Y A U T I S T I C dot home dot blog. Finally, if you're on Facebook and want to find the Actually Autistic podcast and don't want to have to use a podcast app or sign up for everything else, the absolute best thing to do is join the Actually Autistic Podcast Facebook group. One thing you can do is if you just want to see the latest podcast episode and make sure it pops up in your feed, you can go over and like the Actually Autistic Podcast Facebook page and then click the little thing that says, show me posts from this page first. And then you will just get those podcasts when I drop them because I don't post anything else to the page. I don't post memes. I don't talk about anything. You won't get any funny puns or jokes. But if you don't want any of my silly puns, then you can go and just subscribe to the page, click show me first, and then you won't miss a thing. So now with all that housekeeping out of the way, let's see if there's anything else I wanted to talk about. Not really much, just that I'm really enjoying doing this podcast for you all. And it means so much to me when you get a hold of me either through the website or leave a message at the Facebook group and tell me that you like the podcast. That's the fuel that keeps me going. So I'm really excited about this next interview. I just had a wonderful time talking to Anlar. She has a wonderful perspective and a very gentle and yet determined way about her. And I think you're going to enjoy it a lot. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Actually Autistic Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Onstad, and today I have as my guest, Anne-Laure Davin. Anne-Laure studied Soto Zen style meditation, and she currently facilitates Otsit, which is a monthly sitting, which is not necessarily Soto Zen. It's very informal. I, of course, you can do Soto Zen while you're there, but don't feel intimidated. She welcomes everyone at every stage of meditation. 
right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> and she also leads a meditation retreat every year. And Lord Davin, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. And this is an actually autistic podcast first in that Anne-Laure heard the podcast and got a hold of me via the website and asked to be interviewed. And I was only too happy to interview her. So thank you for being my first guest that found me it's kind of an exciting day for me <laughs> well thank you Rachel maybe we should you should mention that we both have a meditation practice and kind of this was a connection too no? oh <laughs> yeah well I do have a meditation practice but I, it doesn't really have a name if you know what I'm saying so but I do talk about it on the podcast periodically so uh, regular listeners will know that I do in fact meditate and I spent a whole lot of time at one period in my life really working on that. But we can get into that a little bit later. But you see, this is what made me reach out to you. Oh. Actually, believe it or not. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> Why would you lie? <laughs> <laughs> so you'd heard that I meditated on the podcast, and so then you decided to see if I wanted to talk about it more? Uh, yeah, well, I kind of... Uh, heard in your voice like it was softer and then I asked you and then uh -huh. you said yeah there was something yes I forget what it was that mm. made me feel that like you obviously had an interest in meditation yeah something was said I forget what Rachel okay okay that's fair enough you don't have to <laughs> it's all right it's not a quiz <laughs> well thank god <laughs> so first of all how did you find out that you're autistic? Uh, well, I was formally diagnosed, boy, it's going to be its birthday, nine years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a lifesaver event. Mm -hmm. um, how did it come to pass? It's never very simple. I, I think in the, uh, by what I hear in uh, many autistics experience, um, you know, um, I am French, hence my accent. I mean, I came here 32 years ago, so mm -hmm. it has been a long time, and I can't say that I'm very French anymore. I'm more American, I'd say. But uh, in France, I was never diagnosed, which, well, which, if I may say, I'm kind of glad about because... I'm pretty sure I would have been locked into in an institution, mm. which is bad news. Yes. Um, I mean, once you have to take all those meds and, you know, they really, anyway. And then when I came to United States, it's interesting because it took exactly the same amount of years, that is 23, to be diagnosed here. <laughs> so you can't <laughs> say that one country went faster than the other one, okay? <laughs> And, uh, well, I became very ill, you see. I, I eventually, when I was in my f 40s there, yeah, late 30s, beginning, yeah, my sensory um, problem went through the roof. Uh, you know, it's like my whole life they had been there, right? And then, um, I don't know, the stress. I was a single mother, and I guess the stress, you know, was the stress that shot up. And then I think another uh, thing that I developed is a, um, 
let's see, what's the political term now? It's no longer called comorbidity. I forget what they call it. But anyway, I um, I developed a, a very painful physical, um, you can call it injury or what, I don't know what to say. It's like a, a, a spasms in my neck on my left oh. side. And that goes, that radiates on my back and on my left shoulder and I actually was paralyzed with my left arm at oh. some point and the pain was just terrible. So at the same time, very interestingly, my sensory uh, problems went through the roof. I mean, I could hardly go out. I would go very early in the morning, you know, Yeah. <laughs> and minimally and my son had to leave. Uh, because, you know, he was a teenager at the time and he could not do anything uh, anything a teenager usually do, which is staying up late and uh, putting gel on his hair and making noise of any kind. You know, we had breakfast in the dark and on and on and on. So anyway, it was a nightmare time. Yeah. So I saw various doctors and, you know, the traditional I had, of course, I had very low insurance, health insurance. And so the traditional clinic, they never figured it out. <sighs> but then um, I had to go to believe, again, I'm saying believing or not, I say that a lot, but it's actually um, social, um, the welfare that helped me most. Mm -hmm. Because they smelled the rat when I fainted in their, in front of their um, social worker one time. And from then on, they decided to helped me and tried to figure out more and um, they helped me get on social security yeah. uh, because I could no longer earn a living and I, I was obviously, uh, you know, disabled at that time even though I did not have a formal diagnosis yet there was obviously something going on. And then two years later when you're, when you're enrolled in social security, um, automatically two years later you, you have a medical or medical yeah, I get confused. Medicare. No, Medicare. It was Medi-Cal, and now I think it's Medicare. So the, Yeah, it's the, the better one. Confusion so, is understandable, yeah. Yeah, right. But anyway, the better one meant that I could see a neurologist mm. on my own and a, a good neurologist at that, with always with the help of Zen friends, always, mm -hmm. the entire time. But anyway, when I saw the neurologist, well, he diagnosed me. Mm. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. And then and I got proper services and on and on. So. Did you suspect that you were autistic? Oh, yes, I did for the past two years before the formal diagnosis. I had figured it out. You so. had figured it out on your own. Well, and kind of, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Well, I understand it's not, it can be a time full of questioning and unsureness about the diagnosis, especially nine years ago when much less was known about autism and women. Mm -hmm. yeah. How? What did you look at that made you suspect that you're autistic? Uh, well, you know, those sensory problems were really big. Mm -hmm. I am not talking just of a, like a, of a little thing, you know, like a, mm -hmm. with, it was with the energy of despair that I figure out... Uh, of course, I had earplugs, but those were not enough when I went right. out. Even often at home, I had to have them. So what I devised is, a, you know, those, um, call them uh, 
professional workers headsets you know those mm -hmm. you see yeah. protective yeah protective earwear sure right protective but they're not enough either so what i did is i um, called a uh, soundproof company and they if, took two years for that project to happen but i was desperate uh, they sent me scraps of a uh, soundproof material called mass-loaded vinyl, and I cut patches of that, and I put them, well, I couldn't because of my left hand, I'm left-handed in my left arm, so a friend who did not believe in me either, but anyway, <laughs> he finally cut them, and we put them in uh, the headset, and mm -hmm. between that and my earplugs, I can't say it was, it is perfect, but it was much better. I could actually go do my groceries and survive. Wow, you know? wow. my gosh. So yeah. were you reading books or looking online? Yeah, that's another thing I did. Uh, well, first it was online. I remember mm -hmm. the night where I got uh, actually from a nurse uh, the idea that I should look it up and uh, also a social worker at welfare. And I was like, oh, this is just like me. I was crying, Rachel. But then I yes. thought, better sleep on it and, you know, to see yes. if I was still going to think that the next day. I did not sleep anyway at all that <laughs> night, but I was oh. sure of it the next day. So, but then I started to look at books. Yes. Uh -huh. And so I read everything I could put my hands on that was at my local public library. Right. Uh, of course, Temple Grandin and um, William Stillman and, yeah, a bunch of the uh -huh. those authors. And, uh, yeah, I, I saw it was totally me. Yeah. And so after you got the official diagnosis, did that impact you emotionally? I mean, besides the yes. obvious relief, you know. Yes. Yes, both, both emotionally and, uh, yeah, both. Emotionally, it was like, oh, those, uh, you know, the pieces of the puzzle suddenly made sense. You know, I could look at my entire life and finally figure it out. And also, I went to meet people like me. Ah, oh, mm -hmm. such a relief. Mm -hmm. Such a relief. Yeah. And did you go through that sort of life review that so many of us experience? Where you yes, I did. I I, I tell. I just told you that. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, I it was like uh, the puzzle that made sense to yep. You know, all the pieces suddenly fit together. And how long did that process take? Where you're coming up with old memories and going, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. Uh, actually, for me. Um, you've got to understand that I, at the, 20 years ago, I started this uh, Zen practice, and I kept it up uh, during this illness, um, and uh, that really shaped um, my landscape, if I can say things uh -huh. like that. And so, to answer your question, I kind of it kind of took only like not very long, you know, like, uh, well, because I had thought of it two years before the formal diagnosis, I'd say mm -hmm. within the next six months, I was, yeah, I, I was ready to move to something else. You know, I, right. I didn't want to spend my whole time just mulling over the past. Right. And uh, what I've noticed in 
talking to people both on the podcast and online in lots of places is that that particular process, it's very intense and it has a beginning and an end. <laughs> yeah. It really yeah, yeah. just sort of ends just like you're cooking or anything else. That yes. It's a very kind of tangible process. And once you're through it, I mean, once in a while, you know, the spare memory will pop up or, or something else will remind me of something. And it'll be a little bit that I hadn't quite cleaned out the first time. And I'll go, oh, but in terms of this sort of overwhelming avalanche of memories that I couldn't stop even when I was sleeping, that did come to an yeah. end. I agree with you totally. Yes. And I feel like that's a really comforting thing for people in the middle of that process to hear because I didn't know if it was ever going to end. I thought, <laughs> well, this is just me now, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and it also, in, I mean, for me, I think maybe my Zen practice, of course, was part of that is that it really helped me to feel, to have more dignity, to feel more coherent about myself mm -hmm. and to basically it was kind of a growing up time mm -hmm. for me yeah yeah same definitely so you started doing zen uh 20 years ago is that is yes that right? i did yes and did. what motivated you to try zen well what motiv motivated me is that i could not understand what was going on with me Mm -hmm. You know, and I feel like underneath, it is my Zen practice who oriented me toward the real, you know, thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I had, um, you know, I, I was desperate. I did not know what was going on at the time. Mm -hmm. So I decided, well, this... Seems to make sense. You know, it is about being real. It's not, you know, going into another mm -hmm. realm at all. You know, it's just let's look at what is happening. And I remember the 20 years ago, the uh, so I went to live in a monastery for six months. And uh, the f at the time I was not diagnosed. I did not understand anything. But I remember Rachel thinking well, this is obviously something I cannot control. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. Obviously, something is going on uh, sensory-wise and in some other areas that I cannot control. Mm -hmm. So that was my first. So did you have the sensory issues improved? Is the pain still there or... Were you able to find a way to deal with that pain? So you mean now? Yeah. In uh, 2019 already? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, oh, now I am much better. However, I do have a little bit of a chronic pain in my neck. Uh -huh. and, uh, but sensory-wise, I'd say I'm more like where I was before, which okay. is I'm extremely sensitive and I have a hard time being in the noise, you know, and sustaining mm -hmm. things for a long time, you know, like uh, I cannot work very much at all, you know. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, but at least I am in much 
better. My my arm, my left arm is no longer paralyzed. Oh, again. that's wonderful. That's yeah. good news. Okay, yes. that's good news. Yes. So I, I realized that I wanted to follow up on that so that our listeners aren't sitting there worrying if you're in yeah. pain right now. Right. So yeah, I'm yeah. so glad that's no longer the case. That's wonderful news. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's completely gone, okay, Rachel? Because it's not. Mm-hmm. It's a big problem still, okay? I had, do have chronic pain. I mean, when I, do, when I sit in meditation posture, mm-hmm. you know, upright, and, uh, you know, I, I feel it with each breath. So mm. I just want to tell you that. Anyway. Got it. Got it. I understand. It's, uh, it's diminished, but not completely gone and still something that you need to deal with on a daily basis, it sounds yes. like. But, but it's not paralyzed. Right. And right. that's a big help to be able to use it. I, I, I get it. I had my own weird thing happen in my 40s where I slowly started losing feeling in my legs and in my body and I had no idea what it was and I went to chiropractors and acupuncturists and Mm. they all had their own ideas and finally in desperation I went and got an MRI and I had something that's called a schwannoma and it's a benign tumor and it was inside my spinal cord pressing yeah. up against my spinal nerves, and so yeah, that's yeah, that's so that's kind of what in my, they, because I got a I got MRIs too, mm-hmm. and you know I have a pinched nerve, and it's mm-hmm. right by my spine there. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So they had to go in and remove that schwannoma because otherwise it would have kept growing and it would have killed me. So there wasn't any like option to just mm. leave it in there. And sorry, did it oh, help? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Once it was gone, you know, then there's the six months recovery from back surgery, which is always fun. But uh, I got better. And I still have pain in that shoulder. Nerve pain never really goes away. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Nerves know how to hold a grudge for like freaking (laughs) ever yeah. so if yeah. i'm tired or if i'm cold yeah. or whatever yeah. then it's like me, 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 hey, yeah. me, 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 yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah exactly grief. if i'm stressed you can be mm-hmm. sure it's going to come up yep exactly and there are things that i can't do anymore i can't use any kind of power tool because the vibration sets yeah. up something really yeah. uncomfortable in my nerves yeah, I which can't do that either which yeah. bums me out because i love power tools i love building ah, things really Mm-hmm. Oh, gee, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting that you would do that. Well, I, you know, I'm a visual artist and I like to work big. Ah, so at some ah. point that leads you to power tools. I see. What kind of art, if I may ask? Oh, gosh. Uh, watercolor, sculpture, ceramics, stained glass. I, uh-huh. I, I, I do set design also. And for a while I was making giant three-dimensional kind of bodhisattvas out of plywood and I would paint them and then I had to get my husband to cut them out for me because I couldn't use a jigsaw anymore but yeah I I got past all that and then I had to kind of retrain my nerves how to work again so I did a whole bunch of beading somebody gave me boxes and boxes of beads and I made necklaces and sun catchers and bracelets 
you know, for, for everybody I knew. But that retrained my eye to hand coordination so that then I could mm. draw again mm-hmm. and everything else. Because I came out of the surgery and I couldn't draw and I was terrified that see, I had see, lost that. But this, I didn't. This it's makes okay. me, you know, I have a, na- I have a nagging suspicion that Autistic people have nervous damages in their body. And I feel like, because I, you know, when I reflect upon my, my pain, I, I think, well, lucky I got it when I was 35 because, Rachel, the pain, if I had been younger, mm. it would have destroyed me completely. Yeah, it, it was bad. And it was definitely, it was so gradual for me that like if it had gone from zero to the worst of the pain within a few days or a week or even a month, then I would have been much more alarmed. But it was so gradual. It's just like, oh, this yeah. this kind of hurts and my back kind of hurts. And, eh, you know, I'm, I'm 40 now. These things happen. And it was just super gradual. Yes. And yes. it wasn't really until... I realized that same. I couldn't walk anymore. Yeah, same. And me. finally, went to you know a regular medical doctor and convinced them to give me an MRI because the first doctor I saw said, "Oh, you just have you know back pain. Go home and take some yeah. Tylenol." Yeah, yeah. And I'm it like, <laughs> sounds so similar to me. Now, let me yeah. write down what do you, what is it called? What they told you you had? I had a schwannoma. How do you spell S-C-H-W-A-N-O-M-A? Thank and you. I just want to look it up just for the... You know. Absolutely. And who knows? You know, one of our listeners someday may have dealt with the same thing or be facing the same thing. And I had not thought about it being connected to autism, but it may be because many of us do have what's called... Ehlers Danlow, and I, I may be, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, oh, but one of the aspects of Ehlers Danlow, part of it is hypermobility, very soft skin, some other things, but also mm-hmm, mm-hmm. these kind of random fatty deposits, which is what a schwannoma is. It's a fatty deposit wrapped around a nerve. And it may have been a side effect of Ehlers Danlow. Now, I don't know anything about this, people. I'm obviously not a medical doctor. Amlor and I are just kind of yes, talking about this stuff. So like we're not, yes. We don't know. know. We really <laughs> don't know. <laughs> we really don't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> there may have been an aspect to that, and certainly a lot of the things that made me uncomfortable in that process, bright lights, loud music, like I stopped being able to go dancing, I couldn't tolerate alcohol anymore. Well, but can you now? Because you see, I still can't do any of those things. Well, I was able to for a while. And then I can't drink at all yeah, anymore. You know, it went from, you know, in my 20s, me having margaritas whenever I wanted to and, you know, drinking tequila mm-hmm. shots and uh, I kind of miss those days. It was kind of fun. You know, I I was never really a heavy drinker, but a lot of us who are autistic, 
It can help in some social situations to yes. be able to drink, and I definitely used it in that way. So I went from being able to drink tequila to having that moment where I threw up and could never drink tequila again. That's <laughs> that's the way it goes. Yeah, see, I had that moment when I was 18, so uh, that that, happened. and that clear, totally cleaned me up for my life. You know? Wow, well, really... I... I kept going from there, and I would have less tequila, and then I got to a point where, okay, no more tequila, that's fine, and I wasn't really into any other kind of hard alcohol, and so then I could still drink wine and sake and mead, and then after the schwannoma, I really couldn't drink wine anymore, but I could still drink sake and mead, and mm. now I can't even drink those, but I'm 58, so... And I'm going to be 55 next month. So you see, mm -hmm. yeah, age and has a lot to do with that too. <laughs> I totally agree. I think but age I, is... But I heard you say that you kind of miss it because what I miss uh, now mm -hmm. is, you know, I hear people talking about all the things they did. They go out in the evening and they do, and mm -hmm. I just can't do those things. I cannot no. go out in the evening. I can't, you know, I... I I cannot do lots of the things, you know, people do, you know, traveling and anyway. I, I, I do. Tr I travel yeah. a little bit, but because my mom is in France and, you know, mm -hmm. I, so, and I'm better now. I'm really better than I used to be. I mean, for, for 10 years there, I did not do anything. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I could not get out of the house. That I, I was really in bad shape. Yeah. Yeah. But now I, I can, so I don't well, have to complain. I kind of kept traveling and was just miserable and unable to sleep. And then, I don't know, you know, the, the older I get, I'm feeling like, well, I'm not going to grow out of that. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And it, it takes a tremendous pressure off of to try to improve myself or something. But I am just at a point now where I realize that I am terrible at traveling yeah. and that I need downtime and yeah. Obviously, discovering that I'm autistic has helped me tremendously to understand why sometimes... So find balance quickly, huh? Quickly. Mm -hmm. yeah. And to understand why there are days when I can't get out of bed. Yes, yes. You know, I can't promise people anything. I can't really commit because I know that there is those days mm -hmm. where I'm going to be, you know, I won't be able to sleep very well. And then the next morning, mm -hmm. I won't be able to get up. Yep. Yep. And... What I'm finding is that although I can't really handle a lot of sunlight, but I still am sort of a solar creature in that if the sun comes up early, then I get up early. If the sun is up late, then I can stay awake later. But in the wintertime, when the sun goes down, I feel it and I start getting tired <laughs> as soon as yeah. the sun yes. goes down. Yes, me too. And yeah. this is my suspicion. And again, dear listeners, holy conjecture on my part, but I'd appreciate it if people start kind of paying attention to this, especially if you're over 50 and really starting to notice these sensory issues, or if you're younger than that and really sensitive to the sensory issues. I think artificial light is bad for us. Yeah, I agree. Oh, yeah, I can't stand it. Yeah. I suspect that it overstimulates our pineal gland. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. And 
that that's why we have trouble sleeping, that that's why we get migraines. Yeah. I don't think we're well adapted to an industrial society. Yeah. And it, what this yeah. means is, you know, I, I have an acting company and I have actors that I dearly love and they go do other shows. And <laughs> look, I'm not going to be awake past nine o'clock. So there's just no point yes, in me going. Me. Actually, it's <laughs> you know? after eight, don't call. <laughs> Don't call, don't come by, <laughs> just assume I'm going to be yeah. in bed listening to music or if the sun is still up, then I can be reading or something like that. But yeah, oh, that's I should really tell you, interesting. I should tell you that also one, one thing that they did um, when they formally diagnosed me is they gave me uh, a little bit of meds, uh, medicine called Seroquel mm -hmm. and I'm taking uh -huh. a low dose. But it really, really helps me. You know, without that, I can't and, sleep. So I'm really, really grateful for it. Uh, it's like an so anchor. That helps you sleep. It anchors me. Uh huh. I just smoke lots of pot, <laughs> and that works great for me. And again, you know, here's something that I sort of felt kind of guilty about. Now, let me be clear: when I was having kids and when I was pregnant, I did not smoke any pot. I, I, I was really what's the word a purist I was a purist about what I put in my body when I was pregnant and nursing and then when I had small children I never wanted there to something happen and me thinking oh I shouldn't have been smoking pot or I shouldn't have been drinking or something like that so I cut everything out and when you have small children and you're running around you know you don't sleep anyway, so it didn't it didn't matter that much for me at the time. But I found it to be tremendously helpful and also helpful with the migraines and everything else. Um, something else, as long as we're talking about this medical stuff, is that I have glaucoma. Mm. And that was something that came on when I was really young. You know, in my early 50s, most people don't get glaucoma in their 50s. Mm. And that, too, may be autism-related because, again, we're talking about nerve issues. It's a nerve in the eye. Yeah, I just, I just feel we're more fragile in terms of autism. Oh, uh, boy, that is the truth. So all of my autistic listeners, I highly recommend that you go out and get a glaucoma test early and often because this kind of thing can be treated if you catch it early enough. And what I found too, which was fascinating, was that the eye drops that help with the glaucoma also got rid of my migraines. Hmm, interesting. Every time that I think some part of my life is not related to being autistic, then I have a conversation with somebody and I go, oh, wait a minute, maybe maybe there is a connection okay. there. Oh, and there's one thing I wanted to say. I don't know if now is the time, but no, go ahead. Did I tell you, Rachel, that I wrote a book? No, you didn't mention that. You see? Well, anyway, three years ago, I wrote a book, and it's a memoir. It's called Being uh -huh. Seen. Uh -huh. And it's a memoir, and it does talk about autism and how, yeah, how all this came together. And, you know, it, I, it was published, yeah, three years ago. So, you see, um, it does 
You know, it doesn't talk about my Zen practice of these days that much because that was, mm-hmm. you know, I finished it. Like, this started about five years ago, and that's when, you know, I kind of stopped the book, so. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, that's wonderful. I I have done some Zen meditation, and there's something about it that feels to me like it's perfectly adapted for autistics. Oh, I so agree with you. So how about if you tell us some ways how that type of meditation is really conducive for autistics? You know, there is, of course, the silence. You know, sensory-wise, for me, and, well, I suspect for many of us, you know, being uh, in silence is just great. Being in silence with people is very powerful. Um, you know, in a monastery, everything is designed uh, for less sensory stimuli. Uh, it's not really designed per se for autistic people, but that's actually what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there is that, and there is the fact that well, you know, let's get real is what uh, my, my Zen practice is about. And, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, um, uh, the, um, I, by what, in my experience, what I see is, you know, uh, this tendency to uh, see the glass as half empty always and pretty dark always in my autistic personality something that I have to um, meditate with a lot you know to you know it's not like I'm doing like you know irrealistic reframing but uh, I I feel like sometimes I have a tendency to see things too dark when they're not that dark uh-huh. I mean, uh, there are, there, I'm not a, I'm privileged to be able to do this and live uh-huh. where I live. And, you know, uh, I'm privileged in many, many ways. And I'm never forgetting that. Uh-huh. But on the other hand, um, you know, I, I, I can't, my practice helps me to see that I cannot you know, that every human being has a dignity, uh, whether uh, we are autistic and poor or whatever, you know, um, human being, a human being has a dignity. And so my self-esteem got much better, you know, it, it really improved with the practice. So did you stay... In a monastery? How long, how long did you stay in the monastery? Well, 20 years ago, I stayed for six months. But then just recently, last winter, I actually um, went back in another monastery for three months. Mm-hmm. And where was that? Oh, that one is in, uh, well, it is in California. It's called Tassajara. Um it's behind Santa Cruz in the mountains. It's a hot spring. It's beautiful, except in the winter, it's very cold. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and it's, and, you know, it's monastic practice. It's not a retreat. 
So tell us what it, what it's like to be in a monastery. What does a day look like? Well, you know, monastic practice uh, means uh, little sleep. It, it feels like it's... Um, you know, two blades. I mean, to you know, it's like a well, a sword with two a sword with two sides. You know, um, and that they are kind of necessary because it brings back in your face. Well, at least it brought back in my face, and well, I know many others too. Is you know what our stuff is. It becomes very clear when you're exhausted and you're cold and all these things. You know, it's like I'm less picky and choosy than I used to be. You know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then we spend a lot of day I'd say about 80% of the time is in silence so mm-hmm. you know that is for me beautiful um, mm-hmm. we don't have overhead lights at all in fact there is little lights usually uh, <laughs> uh, which for me is great you know the, all the sensory stuff um and so we spend, how is it in a monastery? Well, we get up at 3.50 a.m. Actually, for me, it was before that. And uh, we go to bed. Normally, people go to bed by 9.30. They're usually asleep, but not me. Um, so then we go in the zendo, which is where we sit, and we sit. A lot. And we have uh, three meals a day in the zendo most of the time. Not 100% of the time, okay, but 80%, if not 90% of the time, we eat in the zendo. Oryoki style, which is a lovely, lovely thing. Uh, It means that... um, So we're wearing robes, black robes, with those huge sleeves. (laughs) And uh, so when we eat, we all have a little bundle that we brought the first day uh, with us. And that bundle is composed of three bowls and a few white cloth. Well, white or another color, depending. Uh, and uh, we, it's like a dance made in, in, done in silence. Uh, well, they are instruments, and there are chants. Uh, but uh, we open our oryokis, our bowls, uh, the same way, and we set them up. And then uh, a pre-designated few people uh, who are the servers for that day uh, come with the food that was prepared in the kitchen, and they are uh, in silence and they, uh, you know, uh, bring you the, 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 the first pot and the second and the third, since there are three bowls, right? And they mm-hmm. serve the food and you have hand signals to signal when you no longer want anything. And, but, you know, you learn to be uh, quite here too, in every aspect of the practice, uh, one learns to be attentive and pay attention. Because if you put too much food of something you cannot eat, well, what are you going to do with it? Because basically, uh, those bowls get washed by us uh, at the end. Uh, the food is um, 
there is no leftover. You have to have eaten it. So <laughs> it's yeah. it's vegetarian. Uh-huh. And also nowadays they they have a menu on which uh, outside that they post on which they say you know gluten free or not or the whole thing, uh-huh. but they're usually pretty healthy. But some people don't want to eat anything, so they have a hand signal where they pass and uh, they they have uh, food for you know in a, in a fridge somewhere else that they take for themselves if they can't. Uh-huh. And then we go back to sitting. Uh, we usually have a work period, which only lasts about, you know, about an hour, an hour and a half. The work you do is uh, usually, well, this is a community. A monastery is a community, too. So everybody pitches in. So you get assigned to something. Because of my disability, I was assigned to... Uh, and uh, so-called easy job, which is uh, I worked in the library. So that means I was uh-huh. alone uh, most of the time. And also I was uh-huh. not having to lift and twist and do plenty of things like that. Well, actually, uh-huh. I did have to reshelf book and that could be. But <laughs> compared to, you know, carrying rocks around up. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> then... Um, uh, yeah, so uh, before each meal, we have a little uh, service. Uh, the head uh, priest, the the abbot, um, usually leads them, but he's not the only one. Uh, and um, yeah, we have some chanting, beautiful chanting. Oh, Rachel. Oh, that chanting is just giving me goosebumps just to think about it. <sighs> And I think I did tell you most of our days. Did I forget to tell you something? <laughs> I think I think you painted a really good picture for us of what that kind of experience is like. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot at how so many autistics must have really found peace and comfort in monastic life across cultures, really. And obviously, there's all kinds of different styles of monasteries, and even within one particular path or, you know, spiritual path or religion. But still, the emphasis on uh, work with your hands and low contact, not having to make eye contact, not having to do a lot of idle chit-chat, all of that sounds very appealing to me yeah. often. Yeah, I just don't want to paint a picture that's uh, also, because, you know, a picture that's too easy, you know, because it's... Right, you don't want to glamorize it. No, no I really don't, because, is... you know, I felt too old for it. Honestly, it's for younger people. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And there are different retreats. There are retreats that are made more yes, for totally. yes. people our age yeah, yeah, and totally. of our vulnerabilities. And this was not and that kind a retreat, okay, at all. Got it. This was this was a rigorous, yes, monastic. Correct. correct. It's called a practice period. Yes, it's not the same practice period. Yeah. And let me tell you, if you have never sat zazen, it is physically demanding. You would think 
that just sitting still would not take a lot of work. Yes. But, oh, my goodness. Yeah. It, it is as well rigorous yes. as any... Uh, All the practice. It's not that easy. Yeah. Well, as, as running a marathon, it's just a really different kind of physical exertion. And you are not supposed to be comfortable in Zazen. You are supposed to be uncomfortable. So... You know, I know personally that I could not do it. I'm just not cut out for it. All that said, brief moments of sitting for me have brought incredible clarity to my mind and to my life in terms of understanding things, learning how to quiet that constant chatter that goes on unabated unless you learn either meditation or a technique much like it. I think of it now as the small talk of the brain, and it's just as annoying to me as going to a party where people are talking about things in circles that make no sense to me. <laughs> you know, the kind of small talk that often irritates yes. autistics. When we realize how much of that we've internalized, it's equally annoying. <laughs> yeah, but Terrible. you know, our brains will come up with thinking. <laughs> oh, yeah. No matter what. I mean, it will yes. quiet down. You know, I feel like... Uh, for me, like uh, 20 years ago, you know, I, and when I got really ill, it was like a storm, you know. Mm-hmm. Really, I felt like uh, I was hanging on for dear life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, if you, I, I feel like I made it on the other side and it's much calmer. I'm not saying that it's completely gone because, you know, we are all kind of a, a flowing river in a way, you know. Mm-hmm. And there is, there are obstacles, you know, and <laughs> oh yeah, there are rocks oh, in yeah. there. <laughs> there, there are rocks in there for sure, and thorns and everything yeah. else, yeah. and moments of excruciating embarrassment that we wish we could forget that will just pop up randomly while we're in that space of clearing, clearing this stuff. Well, you out see, that, that is we'd... why I do so much zazen. <laughs> Exactly. I, because I totally I, the get more it. you do it, the more this is going on. You know, the more mm-hmm. I can pay attention and open up and soften up and anyway, mm-hmm. you know, become no, less that's... judgmental. And, you know, this, this gray, this um, seed, a great seed of um, that we all have in us, you know, of kindness. And, you know, it's, it's given a chance to be watered. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. When we stop focusing so much on all the wrongs that have been done against us and all the wrongs that we've committed and feeling bad about, when you, when you can put aside even for a moment, even just for a breath, that pressure, then wonderful things can come in its place. And it's a long process, but much like the memory review that we were talking about earlier, you do notice progress. You do get to a point where you have some breathing room. And those few moments, especially at the beginning, I feel like are tremendously encouraging. Oh, yes. To, yes, tremendously encouraging. Yes. To keep us going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, 
that's what keeps me going. Yes, is if I don't sit, yes. I, I still sit zazen every day. You know, even when I'm out of the monastery. Yes. Okay, uh, and uh, you know, if I don't do it uh, uh, every day, I I don't feel good the rest of the day. I don't uh-huh. feel clean. I look at anyway. I'm I'm not as yeah productive. I'm not as I'm not as I'm not as uh, I don't feel like I'm such a great person as, and not that I feel like I'm a great person the other way either. <laughs> I think you're a great person, Adlora. Let's just put that that whole question to rest right now, well, okay? You. you are a great kind. person. Yes. <laughs> it's true, I'm sure. Yeah, we all have to. I, I'm thinking of uh, this text that I was reading about this dignity of that we all have. You know that there is something else more than our, you know neurosis and restlessness and aggression, you know. Uh, oh, yes. That we are willing, you know, willing to wait, willing to smile, willing to be decent. And that uh-huh. we, you know, we shouldn't discount that potential, that powerful oh, absolutely. seed. Absolutely. So I had started a meditation practice at one point. Well, I, I did a few that I felt were interesting and really helpful for me and I tend to follow Tibetan Buddhism because it's so visual and I'm hyper visual and so actually looking at those very complicated Mm. tankas Mm -hmm. with all the intense imagery Mm -hmm. is relaxing for me in a really deep way because suddenly it takes that whole part of my brain that's busy making pictures and it gives it something to chew on. That's <laughs> funny because you see in Zen it's more like uh, darker colors than Tibetan Buddhism mm-hmm. and for me it's actually resting to not have to see plenty of colors. Exactly, whereas my brain will just make them if I can't see them and that fighting against that is the opposite of what we want when we're meditating. So for me, Tibetan Buddhism was particularly helpful. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I sort of took two practices from that and kind of made them my own because at the time I was raising kids and, you know, That's hard when you raise. wasn't about to go in a, a monastery time. or yeah. go to a retreat right. or anything like that. And so there were two things that I did. One was witnessing, which I think is fairly common to, I think, most types of Buddhist meditation, where instead of getting hooked on every passing thought, you just go, oh, there's a thought. Mm-hmm. There's a mm-hmm. thought. Mm-hmm. It will, there's a thought. It will, you know, the idea is it comes and it, it will pass. Mm-hmm. You know, it does flare mm-hmm. up and it's there for a time, but this too shall pass. What can I say? <laughs> Exactly. So I was doing that practice, but I was walking around a marsh, and it was a a particular marsh. It was like a city park. And if any of you are in Arcata, California, you know the marsh that I'm talking about that brought me peace. And what I noticed was that I go on my pattern, 
of my walk and I started to notice that if I would turn around this corner and I would start thinking about, I don't know, something I should have done that I hadn't yet, uh, put away the dishes or filed paperwork or something like that. But it was some sort of domestic personal thing that I was giving myself grief about. And then I'd come to another part of the walk and maybe there'd be a particular view or whatever. And then coming to my mind would be some thought about some difficult social interaction that I'd had with somebody recently, maybe one where there was a power differential, but it was very specific. And then I'd come around another corner, and then there would be another thought about, oh, I'm so lucky to live in this pretty place. Mm -hmm. It wasn't always negative, but it was such a routine that after a while I was thinking, well, who's having these thoughts anyway? <laughs> you know? Who is deciding? Why am I having these same thoughts every time in every location? And then that started to branch out. I'd be driving and doing the same thing where I'm watching the thoughts arise, and it's helping me be a better driver because I'm not getting carried away emotionally by all these thoughts, I'm going, oh, I'm coming around this corner and I'm having a thought about work again. I'm coming around that corner and I'm remembering something from a difficult relationship in the past. And it was so odd to me that it wasn't the same thought each time, but it was the same kind of thought each time. And just knowing that about myself, how habituated I was to think about these particular topics depending on where I was, was life-changing for me. So that those thoughts just kind of lost all their power over me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, losing their power. Yeah, right. They lost their power yeah. because I felt like, as we say in video games, a non-player character. I was being a non-player character. These scripts were popping up that had been pre-programmed. And I don't know why that particular corner would bring up that particular kind of thought, but it always did. So that was number one. That was a huge one. Mm -hmm. Number two was that I decided I wanted to take a vow of silence. But again, I'm, I'm raising kids. I had a career as an architectural designer at that point. I was dealing with clients and, you know, all of that, living a life. And I knew that I couldn't just, like, stop talking because that would be incredibly disruptive for the other people around me. And I didn't – I really didn't want to be imposing on other people. That's kind of the opposite of the point of, yes. of doing exercises where you're trying to diminish – your ego's grip on your brain. So mm -hmm. I took sort of a modified version of a vow of silence, which is where I would say I would answer a direct question. So if somebody said, where's the bathroom? I'd say down the hall. I would say yes or no. If there was important information that I needed to impart to somebody or directions or something like that, then I would obviously volunteer that. So things like, hey, kids, time to get in the car. Or, you know what, if you build it like that, it's going to fall down. Obviously, those kinds of things. But I did not offer any opinions. I did not initiate conversations. 
And I thought still that people were going to notice. No, nobody noticed. (laughs) I did this for two weeks and nobody noticed. In fact, they liked me better. Yeah. So this was incredibly profound Mm -hmm. for me. I don't do that now because... For one thing, you know, I have special interests, I'm excited about them, and I I like to participate in discussions in kind of a more equal footing way. But it did take away that pressure that I felt that I had to have to contribute to a conversation or to an ongoing discussion, even when maybe I didn't have a stake in that conversation or I was tired or whatever. Now I know that that's not really what people want anyway. You can just respond to them, address their concerns, and go on in your life and not worry about it. And those two things alone were so huge. I cannot recommend meditation enough for autistics because we we get so much input that we don't need and we remember it all and that's the painful part allistic people all this input it just rolls off them like water off a duck's back they don't even remember it most of the time with us it becomes seeds that take root Uh and then we've got this big old tree that maybe we didn't necessarily want there and meditation is a way of weeding out all that input that we don't necessarily want in there. I feel like it's also important to point out that it is not necessarily a religious practice. Yes. You don't have why. to believe. I mean, what does Buddha say about God? Yeah, no, totally. You don't have to. That's why, you know, my, the the group is open to every everybody. Yes, they... You know, uh, Zen Zen is totally not uh, just you know uh, people who don't believe in in God. There, there's a lot. I, in fact, there are groups of people who talk about that. <laughs> See, you know. Yes. So, you know. Yes, and you know there are even places where Buddha says there is no God. <laughs> there is no God. There is no self. There's. There's illusion and there's what we find in that silence and that dignity of simply being that's deeply profound. Of all your meditation practices, other than the sitting, what do you feel like has been the most powerful for you? Was it the chanting? Um, other than sitting? Mm-hmm. You know, I would say actually it has been to meet other people mm. on that level. Uh, I've, I have a lot of friends now, a lot of friends Thanks to that. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like we all share this. We, mm-hmm. you know, this practice, this uh, meditation practice. And we're all in the same boat uh, of trying to, you know, be less judgmental, to open up, to pay more attention. Mm-hmm. to listen and it is beautiful to I mean I'm not saying that I agree with every single person <laughs> at all believe me <laughs> well yes <laughs> but yeah. uh, at least we know we have the same motivation and mm-hmm. we have the same um Ideas, you know, I mean, uh, some, like, for example, were all, I've never met a Zen person who was pro-war or pro-violence. You know, it's actually, Uh we're trying to go the other way, all of us. And I think it's true for every spirituality. (laughs) You know, we all try to find the kindness in the world and I'm not saying it's everywhere again and I'm not saying there is no shadow side to everything to me right to all of us that is just not real you know so that is not the point of my Zen practice (laughs) got it so at some point you decided to lead a meditation group specifically geared towards autistics. How did you get that idea and then how did you implement it? Okay, well, so how did I get that idea? Well, I wanted to share what Mm -hmm. it's so beautiful for me and for, you know, everybody who practices this. We're so much, feeling so much better. I'm not again a hundred percent okay, never, but it's so helpful to us. So I mm-hmm. wanted to share that. And who more than my people mm-hmm. could I share this with? Uh, you know, I, I, so that's how I started. Also, I want to say that um, I do not do this well. The monthly I do mainly. I am the one facilitating, but the retreat, my partner helps me to mm-hmm. uh, do this, and he's also on the autism spectrum. So you know, he's the co-president of uh, in uh, ASCEND, which is a group based in San Francisco, a a s c e n d dot org for autism and professional mm-hmm. parents. Uh, but it has a website. It's a big group. So anyway, my partner helps uh-huh. me a lot with the uh, retreat. Uh, you know, uh-huh. uh, we do that in a cabin in South Lake Tahoe. And it's a beautiful uh, environment. It's in nature. It's up in the mountains a little bit. Uh-huh. So, uh, so let's say an autistic person in your area wants to come and do ought sit with you. What do they need to prepare for? What should they bring with them? Well, it's them? free. The monthly. Not the uh-huh. yearly, but the monthly is free. 
Uh, and, um, well, I think, you know, first is motivation, but that's, yeah, okay. And then practically, <laughs> um, well, I'd rather sit in a, uh, you know, like loose pants than uh, tight fit pants, <laughs> you know, for 30 uh -huh. minutes. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, wear something comfy. Yeah. Uh, also, we have at the... So we do 30 minutes where we're sitting, well, either cross-legged or in Cesar or even in a chair at times. I mean, we, you know, most of the time it's cross-legged, but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes some people really can't. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we do 10 minutes of uh, walking meditation, slow walking meditation. Mm. So, you know, we are not wearing shoes inside mm. uh, the place in San Rafael. Uh, it's, a it's a university, Dominican University, it's called. Uh, and, uh, you know, in every, any zando, there's no shoes. And uh, mm -hmm. it's actually often barefoot. Um, and then, um, so you see, there is not many prerequisite, really. <laughs> okay, so we have a bring your own lunch uh, where we get together after outside uh -huh. on the porch so if you want uh -huh. to be part of that then you bring your own lunch <laughs> yeah but that's totally up to you okay this is not part right of the, i mean it's it's lovely because we yeah we we, we get to know one another a little bit and, uh, uh -huh. did that answer your question again I, because there's not much to say there's not much to bring you know <laughs> that answered the question perfectly good yeah it's because you know, if you sometimes, these days, if you go to a yoga class or something, you're supposed to have a special mat and you're supposed yeah. to have the special clothes. And I used to love going to yoga classes back when, you know, you'd show up in your sweats and you'd do your thing and you wouldn't feel judged at all. But now I'm afraid to go into a lot of these places mm -hmm. because so much. there's so much social pressure. Mm -hmm. And you're supposed to be in good shape even before you walk in the doors. <laughs> I want to reassure our listeners that going to Otsit or any other Zazen or meditation practice, the whole point is to not be judgmental and to not discriminate against other people based on their appearance. So you're going to encounter a very welcoming friendly environment where people will not press you to be social mm -hmm. and if they do that's the wrong place get the heck out of there it's <laughs> not that is not no. the one where you need to be and find another one I, where you know, people are say, respectful yeah i'm sorry i just want to interject here that let's not forget though that it is not really something full of distraction it's kind of the opposite Okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. You know, when I mm -hmm. first came uh, 20 years ago, my friend says, you're never going to be able to be quiet, to not talk. Oh. And you see, nowadays, anyway, that's, mm -hmm. you know, people tell you things and we believe things, but let's be, you know, careful. Mm -hmm. I, I've, seen, I've seen some, you know, throughout in the past five years, you know, some uh, autistic adults who... Well, we're able to be quiet for 30 minutes and then we're no longer 
you know, we're mm -hmm. quite fidgety. Mm -hmm. So... So it's something to try, and because it is Otsit, or again, most places that hold an open meditation session like this, very welcoming, very non-judgmental. There is something magical and very calming that happens in that situation. I myself am a very fidgety person. And there is, I feel like, something that happens in a group setting that we as autistics don't experience very much because we're often not part of a group in a cohesive way. But there is something magical about meditating with other people where it does become easier to be still for a little while and yeah, with allow time. things to bubble up. Yes, and also, you know, we we should not close ourselves in ways, you know, I cannot do this, mm -hmm. I cannot do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this is actually, I feel something that every human being possess is the ability mm -hmm. to breathe, you know, and just mm -hmm. listen to the breathing or just breathe. <laughs> better be breezy <laughs> and that's the whole key isn't it listening to our breath uh -huh. yes yes it's not it, like anything uh, miraculous you know is gonna happen yeah yeah although it is a, you know it's paradox you know the, the whole Soto Zen is full of paradoxes mm -hmm. and you know in a way it is miraculous because words can't convey it you know it's it's like a recipe you know mm -hmm. you you may have you may know the recipe by heart you may have all the ingredients uh but until you actually do it you don't really know it and you know mm -hmm. it's it's very true of zen practice too mm -hmm. well how about if you give our listeners a little lesson in sitting zazen, or even just sitting? Uh. <laughs> how would you, how would, let's say we've got our listeners and they're sitting at home and they're in their apartment in Ohio and they don't know where to find a local zen well, group that have, they could hang out with. Yeah, you don't even have to go anywhere, you know, Rachel. So how could they, how should they set about trying out well, so meditation? Like, you know, I mean, at home, um, you know, I mean, both are important, you know, I mean, alone and with others. But uh, at home, uh, find a place where... You know, it's it's kind of nicer to be quiet, you know, to not have plenty of people making noises right around you. So safe. You have hopefully your own bedroom or space where you can be, you know, where, where you can sit down. Um, usually we sit down on a, some sort of cushion, which, you know, I mean, traditionally it's called a zafu. But, you know, when we start out, uh, it could be any cushion as long as your the spine is a little bit uh, elevated because it's not you know for 30 minutes uh it can 
the spine the right down on the floor. It's the spine feels better when it's elevated. And uh-huh. then we're cross-legged, so the idea is to have the back upright, not you know hunched uh-huh. over or you know. So you know, um, and the legs are either fully crossed or uh, half crossed or you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know I turn toward the wall because I want the lesser distraction I don't want plenty of distraction I'm not I, I you know if distraction are distracting to me <laughs> mm-hmm. so you know um, I, I just um, look at well, my eyes are not fully closed, but they're not either fully opened. They're, you know, um, uh, it's like uh, my uh, eyelids are kind of uh, a little bit down there. And uh, my hands are, well, the classical posture is called a mudra, where both hands are like they are holding a butterfly kind of. But I cannot do that because of my shoulders, so um, my hands are actually resting on my thighs a little bit. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, then uh, breathe and be silent for a few minutes. Well, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And do you... Have a, do you breathe in with your nose and out with your mouth or the reverse? Do you have a particular breathing practice that you like to oh, use? Oh, I see. Yeah, right. Well, uh, I breathe through my nose. Whatever is less noisy. Ah, <laughs> yeah, that makes you sense. You know, the idea is to not sure. overdo it, anything. Not, ah. you know, so... Yeah, so you're not disturbing anything. So uh-huh. noise can be disturbing, <laughs> I'd say. Got it. Got it. So, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I breathe normally, so my nose, uh-huh. normally. For somebody who's never done this before, if they sit down and can do this for five minutes. That's great. That's just great. That's amazing. Yeah, especially at the beginning, you know, really, really, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and keep it up every day, five minutes. That's, mm-hmm. yeah, that is, and, uh, you know, it usually has an impact. It may be very subtle, and we may not even notice it at first. But let's have some trust. It does open up things. It's like all those things that are in us are being massaged a little bit by our breath if I can say it like this <laughs> yeah yeah. It, you know it, we, we start paying attention to them and you know all those things that we try to deny to push out of the way we try to distract ourselves from but they don't really disappear they're there you know though uh-huh. actually that shadow side is in us too so uh-huh. Starting to pay attention is like kind of embracing it. You know, that's the only way in is to accept it. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? It makes perfect sense. Because that internal critic is so exhausting. 
Yeah. And yeah, it is. Particularly for autistics, where we do have the tendency to overanalyze, to replay yeah. social situations that probably everybody else has forgotten. And because our memories are often so vivid, and this all makes sense when you look at dendritic pruning theory, which we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast, but basically the idea is that the, the memory pathways in our brain, holistic people, those get overgrown and forgotten, but they don't for autistic people. So we still have a lot of those memories available to us in living color. And so the first thing that happens, at least that happened for me, when I cut out all of the exterior stimulation, it was like fireworks going off inside my head. All of a sudden, all of this stuff came crowding into my brain. And at that moment, please don't feel like you're failing because you are not failing. You are succeeding in that moment. That's the sign that you're doing it right when that happens. So when it happens, it really panic. It really helps to have a sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. When that happens, you go, oh, that's hilarious, brain. <laughs> okay. And then... You let it do its fireworks, you let it do its thing, and it's okay to even sort of admire how hard your brain is working for you at that moment. Like, I think of it as like an overactive puppy that just wants to kiss me and lick my face. I'm just, I'm not doing that right now. <laughs> you know, it's not, not the time for face licking. So, you know... If you just kind of gently, oh, so gently just go, okay, that's not what I'm doing right now. I'm sitting. I'm breathing. I'm breathing. And then you'll get that thought in for like a millisecond, and then the fireworks will start again, and the the three-ring circus. And again, this is a sign that you are succeeding. So you just keep at it and there is something magical that happens when you sit at the same time and the same place and again I want to reassure people if you're five minutes late if you're ten minutes late if you miss it one day whatever it's you have not lost anything it's okay it's just like listening to a podcast. You put it on pause. You come back. It's still going to be right where you left it on pause, and you can just take up listening again. You can take up the practice again at any time, and you will no, not have lost me, anything. Rachel, right? what did you call this practice? You said at the beginning that you have often talked about this. We have such a nervous system. Oh, oh what I was talking about was uh, dendritic pruning. See? Yes. How then 
dendritic, dendritic pruning. And if you go back and listen to the episode with Constantine Anthony, uh -huh. which I think is like, I don't know, third or fourth episode, then we talk about it there. It's fascinating and is the first thing that I read that gave me a physiological sense of what was happening. All right, we've we've got our listeners and they've never tried meditation before and they did it for the first time for so they'll try for yeah. 5 minutes. You guys try <laughs> a few minutes. Right? A few minutes. Every yay. Day. And then after a while it's like any habit. After you do it enough, you start to miss it if you don't do it. And it quickly ceases to be something like, oh, I got to go do this thing. And really quickly becomes, oh, great. I'm really looking forward to practice. And let's remember, too, that it doesn't cost anything. It's free. I mean, if you do it at home, of course. Oh, yes. If you go with other people, usually they ask for a little something. But I'm very lucky because they've always helped me. You uh -huh. know, they never ask me for very much. They give me scholarships constantly. If there's no scholarships, if it's expensive, if people are wearing fancy clothes, you may be in the wrong place. Not definitely, but you may be. And look for another group that is less uh, status conscious. Because yes, status should be the opposite of meditation. Meditation is a great equalizer. Okay. So, Anne-Laure, do you have any other hobbies or special interests that you're particularly excited about right now? Well, you know, I'm French, so from time to time i got to go to France. <laughs> Yay! So if, so, if we go to... That's exciting. As... If I were to go to France, and I've never been, and I, I dearly want to go, where, if you were going to create an autistic guided tour of France, where would you go? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I actually will have a little conference happening on uh, around this topic of autism. Oh, you know, there is a place in France called La Zatipi. Z-A-T-Y-P-I-E. Mm -hmm. That's for, uh, yeah, that's all about uh, autistic uh, people. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's also a place. Uh, so is it... Is it like a museum or a community or? No, it's a community they have. There. Uh huh. And what do they do there? I think that people. It's it's in a beautiful uh, environment in the mm -hmm. in the countryside, mm -hmm. uh, in the south side, and people, um, you know, uh, can come and spend some time there. And they are part of the community. They have to help with cooking the meals mm -hmm. and. Uh, um, you know, and uh, so is this like a retreat or more of like a therapy kind of a place? Uh, I think it's more like a therapy kind of uh -huh. place. They're not, you know, that's not a retreat. Uh, right. No, that's not, has nothing to do with uh, 
like at least not a Zen retreat, maybe a retreat in a of course in another way. I mean, you know, like um, they they have uh, yeah bedrooms and mm-hmm. you know it's, mm-hmm. it's a nice community mm-hmm. for autistic for people. autistic people. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. All right, I yeah they have a website which is www.zatp.fr. Okay. I will so check it out. And you said that you're going to be doing a conference soon? Well, yeah, I'm going there next September. Uh-huh. And so, well, they actually there is a uh, an international autism uh congress happening uh in Nice, France. Mm-hmm. Which we're not going to go because well, it's too much noise, too much money, not enough time, you know. Right. <laughs> I, I, right. But uh, this is going on. And uh, yes, I'm organizing a little uh, conference on autism with a few uh, other uh, women who are uh, interesting in that topic, mm-hmm. who are, you know. So, yeah. And when's that going to be? Oh, the the conference in Lyon. The, um, I don't in the we don't know exactly the middle of September. I'm sorry, I don't. Okay, know exactly so sometime because so sometime mid September of 2019. Exactly, you're going to be organizing mid September. Mid September, sure. you're mid-September. you're going to be organizing a conference in Lyon, mm-hmm. and we will be sure to add all that information to the website as soon as you have it available for us. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. I don't know when that's going to be, but I will have it because I know they're meeting without me (laughs) (laughs) on Memorial Day. (laughs) Well, that sounds super exciting. Well, is there anything that we missed that you wanted to cover? No, we talked about everything. Okay. think uh, okay well well you know i yeah go ahead i am just back to meditation and i i just can't stop talking about meditation so you know i i i just am so grateful that i stumbled upon it that i want to tell that to others mm-hmm. yeah it's it's life-changing Yes. And I think, unfortunately, people who have really serious issues that they're dealing with, sometimes they get told, uh, particularly in the United States, I don't know if it's the same in other countries, oh, all they need to do is some mindfulness training. And it's not, it's represented so poorly. I feel like, on the one hand, I'm kind of glad that meditation has made it into the mainstream. On the other hand, it's often so poorly implemented by people meaning to be helpful. So if you had a bad experience with the kind of mindfulness training that they give to people in corporations or hospitals, please don't judge your capacity or rewards of meditation based on that alone. Very well said. (laughs) (laughs) And it's obviously not a substitute 
if there's uh, drugs or chemicals that can help you, uh, and Lord takes something to help her sleep, I smoke massive amounts of pot, and luckily for me, I'm in a legal state, so it's not a be-all, end-all the way some people represent it. It's not like, oh, if you just meditate enough and drink enough water, all your problems are going to go away. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> but it's a wonderful gift, and I think one that can be particularly well-suited to autistics. So, mm -hmm. Amor, yep. is there anything else that you would like to say to our listeners? No, I think we covered about everything. Okay. Rachel. All right. I, I hope. All right. Any words of <laughs> I just want to say Any words of encouragement? Yeah, I want to Yeah, I want to say thank you for listening, you know, and uh, that I I am glad you're here. Well, you know, I, I you're also a friend, you know. We are we're all in the, in the same boat together. All right, sounds good. Okay, Anlar, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. Oh, you're so welcome, and thank you for contacting me. It was such a treat to get your nice email and to get to talk to you on the podcast. Yeah, well, thank you. Same here. Well, I hope someday we may meet. Oh, Who wouldn't knows? that be fun? We're both in California, you know? Yeah, well, I'm I'm up here in Portland, Oregon, so we're not that far away from each other. We might actually get to collide in time and space sometime. That would be super yeah, fun. Yeah, Portland. Yeah, that's good to yeah. know. Indeed, yeah. yes. Yeah. All right. Who knows? All right. Well, well, thank you very much for your time. And thank and, you uh, for... You have a good rest of the day. And thank you for being actually autistic. Yes, and you too. Thank you. <laughs> Let us be actually autistic. That's right. All day and every day. <laughs> yes. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>